0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad, I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing he doctor and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're gonna get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not gonna talk about COVID. We're back, oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MD MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I want to talk about our new paper, Use of Second-Line Immunotherapy in Control Arms of Randomized Controlled Trials of Kidney Cancer Drugs. It's out now in JAMA Network Open. It's a systematic review. It's led, of course, by Jack Sharp, who's chief resident at UCLA. Also joining us is Ali Khaki, who is... An assistant professor at Stanford University. And this is about a question that plagues all of the frontline kidney cancer trials. Let me walk you through our study. So, we all know that until very recently, the standard of care in RCC was of course a TKI frontline. You're gonna give something like a sunitinib or a pazopinib. If you like that GSK study, that's what you're gonna give. And then when people progress, many of us prefer a second-line option of immunotherapy. We have randomized control trials showing survival benefit of immunotherapy, and it is a nice, different option to be given second-line. If you insist, you might want to give it in the third-line setting, but most of us were giving it in the second-line setting. So that was the standard of care in most nations that use and can afford these drugs, which is sunitinib, followed by checkpoint inhibitor, followed by another TKI or an mTOR inhibitor, something like that. That was the kind of standard of care we provided. Enter all these new studies. This is a paper out now, John Sharp. And what we looked at was all of the trials that tried to combine a checkpoint inhibitor and a TKI in the frontline setting in RCC. And if you look at table one, you will see we've got the clear trial. We got Checkmate. We got Emotion. We got Keynote. We got Javelin. And we got another Checkmate. We got all the frontline studies. And these tested many things. They tested Pembrolonvantinib, Nevocabo, Atezobav, Pembrolaxi, Nevo Nevoipi. You get the picture all of these studies went up against sunitinib which was the standard of care and they all have found some pfs benefit that doesn't interest me that much i'm not surprised when you combine active anti-cancer drugs you will get a deeper response rate you will get a pfs benefit but you will also exhaust some tools in your toolbox and what do you have left when the patient progresses And so in my mind, the relevant question is, do you improve PFS-2? Do you improve PFS-3? And of course, most importantly, do you improve overall survival or global health-related quality of life? That's the question that these trials have to answer. These trials have to also answer that question in a landscape that looks like the clinical practice landscape of the United States. And that means that when these patients progress, they should... Get a checkpoint inhibitor and come to our figure figure two it tells you the story of all these studies the dark blue bar shows you the percent of cancer patients who are getting the post-protocol immunotherapy that's what i want to see this is if you were assigned the control arm initially tent, of course and you progressed did you fall in the dark bar slightly above that is they got some post-protocol therapy but it wasn't immunotherapy wasn't a checkpoint inhibitor I don't like to see that that much. That tells me they were able and fit enough to get therapy, but they weren't getting the therapy I wanted to see them get. And then above that, this is no post-protocol treatment. They've come off the trial. They have progressed on Sutent. They're getting no post-protocol treatment. That is not good. That does not reflect the U.S. standard of care. And the top bar, they're still on studies, still re- receiving sunitinib. I got no problems with that. That's reasonable. But my point here is that that dark bar, it should be much higher than it is. People will argue, well, in the real world, we know many people, after they come off for sunitinib, they're not fit enough for further treatments. Sure, but this isn't the real world. These are regimented, randomized control trials of highly select participants. Many of these patients, probably a slightly higher percentage, are eligible for post-protocol therapy, and they ought to get that. You're not giving them that. Why does this happen? I suspect this happens because of the global nature of modern randomized controlled trials. They're going to places where post-protocol immunotherapy is essentially untenable. They can't afford it. And if they cannot afford it, you are not answering the clinically relevant question for the United States, which is, do you need to give these combos up front to have a survival benefit over giving the sequence of VEGFTKI followed by IO? That's the question that we face. These clinical studies actually, it turns out, They don't help anyone in the globe. They don't help us in the United States because they don't answer the question that faces us, which is, is it better to give the combo than the sequence? They don't help places elsewhere in the globe because they have already shown they cannot afford the sequence. So how can they afford the combo even if it's superior? They cannot afford that either. And so these trials, are in this nether region where they guarantee large US market share and profits, but don't actually answer clinically relevant questions. And I think our paper walks you through that quite nicely. And it shows you that this is really sort of a class effect. This is all the studies in this space. So it's out now, JAMA Network Open, Use of Second Line Immunotherapy and Control Arms of Randomized Clinical Trials in Kidney Cancer. This proves the ever popular phrase that just because it's a randomized trial doesn't mean it's a good randomized trial. These are randomized trials. They're answering a question, which is, is the combo have a better PFS than sunitinib? And that's an easy question to answer. In fact, you don't even need to run a trial. I'll tell you, the answer is yes. The real question is, is the combination superior to the sequence? And does that impact OS? And the answer is, we just don't have any clue because these studies don't really target that key question. They help no one. They don't help us here in the United States, they don't help people all around the globe. And this is the challenge. If you like this video, you really should read the book Malignant, because a lot more pearls are in there. Until next time. I was just catching up on my lymphoma clinical trials, which is near and dear to my heart, because I have a fondness for lymphoma. And I saw a discussion on social media that just created a lot of controversy and firestorms. And I thought it'd be really interesting to unpack some of the arguments here. So lymphoma, what do you need to know about it? Well, I think one of the things you have to know about lymphoma, particularly large cell lymphoma, is that the history is one of the most fascinating parts of medical oncology. I won't go through the whole history. I think I've done that before in some other lectures, but I will just talk about one part of the history. I think In the 1980s and 1990s the enthusiasm for regimens beyond chop was incredible we wanted to move beyond chop and we wanted to try different combinations of multi-drug chemotherapy regimens in the hopes that we could cure a higher fraction of patients after all who wouldn't want that and indeed they were really exceptional single center selected uncontrolled reports of really good outcomes from multi-drug combination regimens. If you gave something like, say, promacytobalm, you'd have a higher CR rate and a higher rate of disease-free survival three years down the road. You'd even have a higher overall survival compared to historical controls. Now, one of the things people knew at this time, we've known this since the early 1980s, is that historically controlled studies, or in other words, if I took 50 people now and I treat them and I compare them to 50 people from ages past, historical control studies often look positive when randomized control trials on the exact same question are later found to be negative. And this was a great example. In a seminal 1993 paper by Rick Fisher and colleagues, they actually randomized people to CHOP and three other multi-drug combination chemotherapy regimens. And the hope was, of course, that one or both or many of these or all three would beat CHOP and have a higher CR rate, a higher DFS, a better OS, But of course, the curves were famously superimposable. The time to treatment failure was the same. The overall survival was the same. They were all essentially the same. And CHOP won. It remained the standard of care because it was less toxic and less cumbersome than all these alternatives. Well, that lesson of lymphoma, that lesson that was captured in that 93 Rick Fisher paper, was never fully heeded. And that has been one of the great and most interesting things about medical oncology to me, particularly lymphoma, but even more broadly, is that even when we've been burned, with single center experience that looks really good in historical controlled fashion that that doesn't replicate in randomized controlled trials. We still continue to make that error over and over again. Enter dose-adjusted our epoch. I think many people thought that taking the drugs in epoch, the oncovin, the anthracycline, the etoposide, and running it over a continuous infusion over several days would have better Delivery to the cancer cell and better pharmacologic properties that result in more cancer killing. And dose adjusted, our epoch is rather elegantly designed, I must admit. Having that cytoxin on day five, having the dose adjustment so you change the level of the dose until you achieve the neutrophil nadir that you so desire to really kind of push the body to achieve the maximum, really sort of tolerated dose or safely tolerated dose of these drugs, I think it's a very elegant strategy. And it was incredibly plausible that dose-adjusted R epoch would be superior to CHOP. But again, we just have to remember history. People in the past, very bright people thought that, but they failed to show that in a randomized controlled trial. Enter the CLGB study 50303 by Nancy Bartlett and Wyndham Wilson, which was a randomized controlled trial that sought to test this. It sought to test dose-adjusted R epoch against R-CHOP, which is the standard of care at the time of the study. And it, I think, accrued patients up until I don't know 2013, and I remember distinctly December 2016 at ASH when the results of this study were presented, and it was found that dose-adjusted r epoc simply failed. It failed to beat R-CHOP, which remained the standard of care for patients with DLBCL. It couldn't win, and again, it fits the history of DLBCL. There are many times in history we thought we could improve upon CHOP, and we couldn't do so in randomized fashion. It also once again reaffirms the value of randomized control trials in this disease. In fact, I would go so far as to say that one of the, the brilliant strategies in DLBCL was to keep fragmenting it into smaller and smaller slivers so that you could pull out your double hits, you could pull out your PMBLs, you could pull out, you know, double expressor for some time. And you can say, you know, now we're getting into a smaller cohort, we can't do a randomized study, but let's just go ahead and treat these patients differently. And in fact, to some large degree, we do that to this day in PMBL and in double hit, a lot of people are giving EPOC or other such regimens. They don't have randomized data showing it's superior. And in fact, if they actually did randomized trials and just in those cohorts, I would have some doubts if it could beat RCHOP. But, you know, we don't know. It's fair to say that I think it's well accepted that you can use for our EPOC, at least in the PMBL and the double hit cohort, or the rearranged cohort. But when it comes to DLBCL-NOS, I think RCHOP is the standard of care. You could even argue that in some of these diseases, you've never proven dosage is superior, but when it comes to NOS, it is the standard of care. Enter the recent controversy. It was a phase one dose escalation study that accrued after the 2016 ASH. It accrued in 2017, 2018, and 2019, and it, took people in phase one. There's no randomization. It gave them all dose-adjusted our epoch with venetoclax was the phase one portion. And we're trying to find out how we can safely combine venetoclax with uh, dose-adjusted our epoch Makes sense. And right now, there are ongoing randomized efforts to try to add venetoclax to Epoch backbone in a cooperative group study in the double-hit cohort. I think that would have been better to actually just test if our chop is as good as our Epoch, or if our Epoch is better than our CHOP in the double-hit cohort, because these retrospective analyses are rather um, low levels of credibility, but it is what it is. They're, they're doing it for that purpose. But one of the most interesting facts that got pulled out of this debate was, I think, found by Aaron Goodman, and he highlighted it on Twitter, which was that at least some, at least maybe about nine, 10, or 11 patients on this phase one study, maybe about a third of the patients on the phase one study, they didn't have double-hit lymphoma they had DLBCLNOS and they were untreated and they were placed on a phase one study of our plus venetoclax. Ooh, that's interesting. Because what you've done in this, in this little study is you've taken some people who would have been perfectly happy and done perfectly well with our CHOP, which is the standard of care for them. And you've given them a different backbone on which you're adding your dose escalation phase one study. And the backbone you've given is just more toxic. So one might argue from a research ethics standpoint that the trial is actually quite problematic. If it had just included double hits or MIC rearrangements, it might be justified on the basis of standard of care, although that standard of care is not based on randomized data. It might be justified just because that's what people do. But to include this group, what you're doing is you're ensuring that many people who would have been treated with a less intense and less toxic regimen now receive a more intense and more toxic regimen and even more cumbersome because, of course, our epoch is a continuous infusion. It is cumbersome. It's much more cumbersome than our CHOP. So Aaron Goodman pointed this out, and I think he kind of subtly suggested that there might be some ethical questions here. Um, But I think it's a good question, actually. And it's one of many such questions I have, and it's going to become very relevant because there's some FDA draft guidance that is going to kind of play on who, in whom can we do phase one clinical trials? And if you want to read more about that FDA draft guidance, check out the paper by Mark Lithgow and I in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. It is now changing some of the rules of the game around clinical trials and allowing us to take untreated people with highly curable malignancies and putting them on phase one dose escalation studies. Anyway, read that article. But back to this question. You've taken people who would have done just great with our chop and given them something more toxic and had your little dose escalation. That makes it easier to crew your phase one, no doubt about it, but it is arguably, I think, unjust for those people who are getting some backbone that is just gonna add toxicity, and in a randomized control trial has never proven superiority over the standard of care RCHOP. So I think it is a questionable design feature. And this was getting discussed on Twitter, I think some of the fair points were, you know, is this acceptable, not acceptable? Is this just because we're interpreting it through the retrospectoscope? And I think that's not true because I remember where I was in that ASH in 2016. And when I saw those Kaplan-Meier curves, I was like, it is over for all comers, DLBCL and EPOC. It is over, there's no other way around it. You know, it's over, EPOC has uh, failed and it's failed to beat the standard of care. So it has to prove it's better than the standard of care before I revisit it, at least in all comers. So Aaron's point is good the reaction was swift. And it was very predictable because I've been there. I've been there in 2016 and 17 when I was hammering on some different studies. And the reaction is, you know, who are you to comment? You're not a trialist. But I do think that Dr. Goodman is in fact a trialist in the sense that he does participate and run clinical trials. But somebody said like, you know, until you are, you know, the PI on a clinical study, you know you can't you can't talk about it or you can't comment and that to me is just a perennial um, excuse I hear on social media and it is a really weak argument and I want to talk about that for a minute. Imagine if somebody went to the movies Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, and they said you know we like this movie we give it two thumbs up but then they said you know what until you actually make a two hundred million dollar blockbuster film you can't judge this movie. Imagine if somebody went into a restaurant and they tried the soup at a restaurant and they'd spent 20 years as a as a restaurant critic for the New York Times. And then they were told, you know what? Until you open your own soup kitchen and run your own soup restaurant, you can't really comment about our restaurant. Imagine somebody had a beer and they went to rate it on one of these apps where you can rate a good beer. And they said, you know what? Until you brew your own beer, you can't rate this. I think we would all agree That's such a policy that one cannot judge something until one actually constructs that thing themselves. That would be a misguided and foolish and defeating strategy and it's not a rule we adhere to in any space of our lives, especially with randomized controlled trials and clinical trials in general. It is of course going to be the case that the most accurate and damning criticism of clinical studies does not come from people who themselves are participating in the recurrent reputation game of running the clinical studies. Allow me to explain that for a second. If you are going to want to run these studies, you got to play ball with these companies. You can't be seen as being very sharp and critical of these companies. And if you want to be critical of these companies, they're not going to want you to be running the studies. So you have to bite your tongue if you want to run the studies. And so what they're really saying is, is that no one can ever criticize these studies because if you criticize the studies they won't let you run them i think there's another thing of course you will learn things by participating In clinical studies, you'll learn things by writing or by copy-pasting a protocol. I mean, writing a protocol, not copy-pasting a protocol, writing a protocol, obviously from scratch. You learn things by doing that. You learn things by drafting a proposal for a study. You learn things by trying to get the study through the arcane and bureaucratic processes that governs clinical studies. Of course, you learn many things. You learn many things when you actually enroll people on studies and you see how you have to handle... You know, if there is something that comes up, how should that be written in the protocol? How should be that navigated? What if the protocol doesn't specify? How do you negotiate those things? Who is more protocol compliant than someone else? You learn so many things, but at the core of a study is not some esoterica. It is a fundamental clinical question, which is who are the people that need EPOC? Who are the people that need Chop? Who are the people that benefit from Venetoclax? These are very simple questions. And all of us who are interested in cancer from patients to doctors to caregivers, we're all committed to knowing the answer to these questions. And the clinical studies are simple experimental designs that should shed light on these questions. And so you shouldn't have to do all these things to be able to quickly see that the POLO trial is a very silly study as I described in a prior video. I'll put the link below. It's a silly study because you took people who you shouldn't have halted the chemotherapy on, you halted them and you randomized them to a costly, expensive drug or sugar pill, which no one would ever do. So you're literally harming the control arm. They're getting harmed because they're getting something beneath the standard of care. This phase one study is something that is harming these people. They're harmed because there are toxicities in this study and you can read about them and they're not so good. And that happened in the backdrop of many people getting a type of therapy that is simply inappropriate because it failed to improve upon CHOP. It's more toxic, it's more cumbersome. So no one would want to do that in real life. That's the backbone. It furthers the interest of the company. Sure, I get that. And you gotta have a reputational game with the company if you want them to come back to you the next day. I get that, but it is not a good study for those at least nine to 11 people who probably didn't need Epoch, um, And certainly it's not justified in. So I find it really problematic. And it's really, what's the goal of this kind of criticism? It's cause they want this guy to be quiet. You know, that's the goal. It's not a real scientific or academic criticism. It's the goal is that, you know what, Aaron? Let's turn the volume down on you. We're going to discredit you by alleging that you yourself don't have the requisite experience to even comment on this issue, when in fact, the comment you've made is actually incredibly to the heart of the matter and very, very astute and wise. And actually, we probably need to reflect on it as a profession, because it speaks to some of the deep failings in this profession, the core root rot of this profession, which is that... The easiest way to have a very successful career is to play ball with the companies that are making tremendous amounts of money off cancer medicine while offering products that offer very marginal to modest deltas in idealized circumstances that may not offer those benefits in average patient populations. I describe that, of course, in the book Malignant. So I found this to be very interesting in so many ways. One, because it feels a little bit different to not be in the hot seat yourself It wasn't me this time. It was somebody else. I wasn't even a part of it. I just stayed out of it. And it was so predictable because I'd lived it before. I felt like I was Aaron Goodman. Aaron Goodman is me reincarnated from a few years ago because I had the exact same arguments about different clinical trials with some of the exact same points. And I think it's telling. I think that the senior trialist making those statements will chill the atmosphere for junior people to comment. I think that um, the trial is problematic exactly as he describes I think that if you extrapolate it, there is a general principle here, which is every single phase one study done in a population where there are very good treatment options has to ensure that that phase one study cannot possibly erode the treatment options in that, in that space. So when you have something like that's very curative, like testicle cancer, a lymph, large lymphoma, or Hodgkin's lymphoma, you gotta tread very lightly with your phase one study because it's possible in fact it might even be under most circumstances probable that you increase toxicity and erode outcomes without benefiting people maybe what we actually need is a reconceptualization i just had a really good idea i'm not going to say it now because maybe i'll try to get somebody to help me write that up um a- an idea of how you could do phase one studies in this space in a more ethical and safe manner it's different than the traditional phase one study in oncology i think we need to point that out as well the traditional phase one studies in somebody who's exhausted all prior treatment options and thus one would contend although they could suffer deleterious effects from the drug it will be carefully monitored and there is you know the therapeutic benefit is not zero of course the misconception is that it's very great but it's not zero and we know from that famous paper by Chris Grady and colleagues that is about four percent response rate in phase ones unselected for many years ago we know in a paper that I did with Derek Tao and Audrey Tran um, that in a pooled analysis in different ways you pool it maybe you're talking about a five percent response rate um, in phase one trials and this like salvage, exhausted, other treatment option setting. But when you start moving it into the frontline setting, into patient populations that actually do fare well from standard of care therapies, it introduces a whole number of additional ethical concerns. And I think Aaron's right. There needs to be something something in this space that will harmonize this and give us some guidance. I just had a good idea of a way you could actually protect participants a little bit better. But that said, the chilling effect is when people make it seem like you can't talk about it. And I strongly and vehemently disagree with that. So, this is a video much more close to my roots, my favorite things in life, which is oncology clinical trials and the way in which they're manipulated to further corporate interests and not benefit patients. Until next time. I wanna talk about Cassiopeia not the constellation. I'm talking about maintenance dara after VTD, plus or minus dara Cassiopeia part two, the randomized control trial and multiple myeloma. This is by listener request. This is for a plenary session. And ask and ye shall receive. So, what do you need to know about this study? Of course, this is the Lancet Oncology paper. This is Cassiopeia Open Label Randomized Phase 3 Trial Part 2, the maintenance portion of it. What do they do in this randomized study? Newly diagnosed multiple myeloma, mostly in Europe, getting darA VTD, or VTD. And if you achieved PR or better, you were eligible for the darA maintenance portion of the study. They accrued between May 30th, 2016 and 2018. So what do I have to say about this randomized control trial? It's actually quite interesting. It's got a lot of problems in it, so that's what makes it interesting to me. Some of the classic problems in medical oncology that we have yet to deal with as a profession. Here's problem number one. When you take a fixed course of therapy and make it indefinite, the endpoint you want to show me that you improve is overall survival. It is almost, too easy to improve progression free survival by continuing active anti cancer drugs. And what you do is you take away a treatment holiday from a patient. You need to improve overall survival or global longitudinal health related quality of life, if you want to persuade me of a maintenance strategy. And if you want to read a paper on that, I'm going to put it right up here. It's a paper I did with uh, Bashal Gay Wally in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. But if you are willing to accept progression free survival as the basis for a maintenance strategy, then Already this trial's got a problem, the control arm of observation. Revlimid at the ASCO 2016, which occurred just like five days after they started enrolling. I cannot imagine they enrolled many patients when ASCO 2016 rolled out. And McCarty and colleagues published their meta-analysis showing that LEN maintenance has a survival benefit after autologous stem cell transplantation that eventually led to an FDA approval, but those results were known just days after this trial launched, and it's hard to believe they didn't know which way the wind was blowing. At this point, it was abundantly clear lenalidomide was the standard of care maintenance therapy in this setting, and yet this trial went ahead and continued for year after year to enroll people and randomize them to observation. That is another classic problem in oncology, the delinquent control arm, mean, I'm going to put a link to a paper right up here that I did with Talal Halal, where we analyzed quality control arms. And then one more that I did with Monty Moyudine where we looked at multiple myeloma control arms. So that's just one layer of the problems with Dara maintenance after VTD. The next set of problems I think has to do with the VTD itself. Now obviously that's an acceptable regimen in Europe at the time of this study, but it wasn't really the U.S. standard of care where we used VRD because it was universally believed that Revlimid was more tolerable than thalidomide. If you can afford the deratumumab, the you could afford the Revlimid. So, I really wonder about this study. It's going into a place in the world where they are much more cost conscious in multiple myeloma and adding on a very costly drug. But if they were willing to spend the money on the DARA, they might have wanted to swap out the thal for a Revlimid. The next issue I see with this study. As it's quite interesting to me. Of course, it's got two randomizations, which I always love. The first randomization, the addition of daratumab in the frontline regimen. They call it uh, induction and consolidation. It's like four plus two cycles. And then the next portion is, if you're PR are better, you get the maintenance randomization. And what they find very clearly, and here, it's not just a subgroup analysis. It is a highly significant subgroup by interaction statistical testing which is that the addition of daratumumab as a maintenance drug does not work if you got dara vtd it does have a pfs benefit if you just got vtd so already, this is really quite interesting. It shows that Dara vtd plus more Dara maintenance is no better than Dara vtd and observation. That was a bit surprising to me. That's actually one rung below Revlimid, where Revlimid has a survival benefit even if you received it as an induction treatment. So why is this one rung below? I think we'll have to start to think biologically about this agent. Is there some saturation effect? Is there only so much Dara a person needs? And how does that influence our interpretation of current second and subsequent line randomized controlled trials? Should the cooperative groups be attempting to have a fixed course of DARA and then omitting DARA from some of these studies? Of course, the protocol of many of these studies was built to be DARA forever. Of course, why DARA forever? Because the company likes you to take DARA forever. The, the principal goals of myeloma clinical trials appear to be give more drugs to people sooner and keep them going for as long as possible. The goals to patients and um, impartial doctors... Is to use the least amount of drugs to ensure people have the longest survival and the best quality of life. And there's a fundamental tension in all the myeloma trials because none of the trials really pursue that research agenda. They just pursue the agenda of more drugs sooner indefinitely. And some of the ways they play the games are, of course, the control arms are inadequate, as in this case. The next way they play the game is the post-protocol therapy may be inadequate. So right now, we know that PFS is improved in the VTD arm when you're randomized to darA versus observation maintenance, which is a delinquent unacceptable maintenance even when they started enrolling but what we don't know is whether or not the overall survival is going to be improved but if the control arm vtd and then observation doesn't ever get a path to dara then it is very plausible that maintenance dara in that group will improve os but that doesn't really reflect the the question which is do you need to give maintenance dara or can you just give it at relapse and achieve the same outcome The trial doesn't really answer that question. So that's just a classic bias in oncology clinical trials of post-protocol care that isn't really asking the relevant question because it is beneath, I think, an acceptable standard. So beyond these points, what do I think about this study? I think this study is not really the study we need in the moment. Um, I think if you were going to spend the money on the dairy, you probably would have been using a VRD backbone. So I want to see VRD plus dara versus vrd but all the subsequent lines of therapy should get dara like we do in the united states and if i were to reflect on the entire landscape of multiple myeloma trials i guess i would say there is tremendous amount of residual uncertainty despite what the kol say we know very little about the right combinations the right sequence I think it is entirely debatable what the first three drugs you give somebody are, what the next regimen is. I think there are even open questions about maintenance, um, certainly this maintenance, which, you, which is bolstered based on a PFS endpoint only and the backdrop of a control arm that was unethical when the trial was run. But there are broader questions about how we could be structuring and implementing all these myeloma drugs. Could you get the same outcomes by giving fewer drugs but ensuring that post-protocol care was up to snuff was the very best salvage drugs we had and none of the clinical studies i think they all have lapses here we're going to try to do something in this space so those are my general thoughts on cassiopeia if you're in continuing a treatment indefinitely as i showed you you really need a endpoint like overall survival or health related quality of life One note about health-related quality of life. You cannot just show health-related quality of life is better like while you're running your study. You need to follow health-related quality of life for someone's entire cancer journey and show that the gains you're getting in the beginning by kicking the PFS can down the road are not offset by worse quality of life later when PFS starts coming faster and faster and faster, potentially if OS is in fact the same. All these health-related quality of life studies they measure health-related quality of life just for a tiny snapshot. That's not really the philosophical concept. And I'm gonna show you one more paper right here by Allison Haslam where we have proven that. The next set of points, you need to have ethical control arms. You cannot randomize people to observation when you know good and well that RevLimit is in fact the standard of care maintenance therapy. And that was shown based on stronger data, PFS in meta-analysis and OS in meta-analysis. Right when you were launching your study, you barely tried to slip your study in a few days before. That is problematic. This is a game that trialists have to not play anymore. We have to refuse the company. Obviously, it's the company's best interest to go up against observation. It's easier. It's beating up a straw man. But we want people to go up against what we're actually doing in our clinics, the best available care. And I think we have some broad issues in multiple myeloma about cost. We have to ask ourselves, and if I were a European nation, I might consider an entirely different research agenda, which is asking whether or not you need to give all these drugs up front indefinitely or whether or not you can actually have a set of standardized sets of drugs for different lines of therapy and achieve the same overall survival. You need to run those studies yourself, Europe. The companies aren't going to help you. You need to do it without the company's help using your nationalized healthcare systems. It is the only way for any sort of control or pushback in myeloma space against the cost, of course, but also what's best for patients. I think we forget. Patients want to use the least amount of chemical products to achieve the longest OS and the best health. And the trial's really not are really not addressing that question or testing it. So those are my thoughts on Cassiopeia. It is yet another study. Most interesting thing to me that I think will have implications for some of the other studies is that if you got Dara VTD, you do not benefit even on a PFS endpoint for more Dara. And that has broad implications that we need to think through and all these other usual problems. So until next time. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.